Welcome to the Design the Future podcast, where we talk with women leading the way towards a better built world. Design the Future is hosted by me, Lindsay Baker, with Kira Gould. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Design the Future podcast. We're happy to be back with you again for this week. This is Lindsay. And this is Kira. And yeah, it's, uh, it's nice to be back with you. How are you, Kira? What's going on? I'm doing great. I'm The sun came out after a gloomy week, so that's a good thing. And I'm in a really good mood this week um, due to a lot of interesting uh, news coming out of the federal level around building efficiency and GSA and uh, white, just yeah. White House activities. So I'm, I'm yeah, feeling, yeah. I heard somebody refer to it as um, this, this wave of good news about climate positive policies, feeling like we have the wind at our backs. Um, and I have to agree with that. It feels, it feels good. It feels like forward motion. And you know how I like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we need that. Um, and it's, it does feel good. I saw a post actually Don Horn, who's worked at the GSA for so many years and he's yeah. such a lovely human being posted Indeed. on LinkedIn. I think it was yesterday. It was something like, do you ever get that feeling that something that you've been working on forever is finally happening? And then you posted about the new GSA program around building performance standards that Indeed. they're working on. And I was just like, oh, Don deserves this. Way to go, Don. Like really, you know, just like passionate folks working in the craziness of the federal government sometimes. I'm For so years and years and years, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Don is not listening, but for everyone that knows Don, let's all send him the congratulations for <laughs> such, a, such a moment. Um, yeah, but that's, I mean, just a little part of everything that's happened um, in this, this past week in terms of sort of specific federal government White House commitments and then sort of a new bill that's introduced. Uh, around electrification. It's it's a cool time. It's a really cool time. Yeah, I'm feeling it. Is. it. And there's yeah. other great announcements regionally and uh, locally and all over the place. Um, one of which I think you are involved with SPUR and their regional strategy that they, they just announced. Maybe you yeah. could tell us a little bit about that, Lindsay. Yeah, <laughs> so sure. Yeah, I, I'm so, it's such a satisfying thing. Anytime a group has been working on something for a few years, but this one is particularly close to my heart. So SPUR is an organization here in the Bay Area. Um, it's it the, the acronym is actually the San Francisco um, Regional and Urban, sorry, Planning and Urban Research. <laughs> I always get it messed up, <laughs> uh, planning and urban research, but really it's the whole um, Bay Area now. We have offices in Oakland and San Jose, um, and I'm on the board of the Oakland um, part of SPUR. And, and so as a collective board for the whole region, we've been working um, with staff and community groups and lots of things over the past, uh, I don't know, it's been, I guess it's been three years um, on mm -hmm. this big sort of visionary document around what needs to happen to the Bay Area to um, have it transform into a healthier, more inclusive, more resilient place for uh, everyone. And it's, it's an exercise that not a lot of regions 
I think, get a chance to do in a concerted way because they may not have a spur. The New York actually does one, um, mm -hmm. or that through not not New York as a entity, but um, the, there's a group in New York that does one. I think it's called the Regional Planning Agency. Regional right? Plan not, Association. Say yeah. Association, right? Sorry, yep. Yeah, that's right. RPA. Um, yeah, so that so there's um there's these things that happen, but it's it's looking all the way out to 2070, uh, which is just a really cool. I don't know. I really appreciate times when we take the energy and effort to think about the world we're trying to create. My my old professor David Orr liked to say that you can't effectively fight for change without knowing where you're trying to get to, and. Mm -hmm. uh, when we talk about the sort of the complexity of sustainability and the built environment, I think it is hard to really pin that down, you know, um, to really think through the details of what you actually want to see in the world. So um, it's a cool project. I'm excited. I hope everybody can go take a look at it just to get inspired maybe for what you would envision for the place that you live um, and on all the, in all these sort of different facets of it's not just climate, it's really focused on economics. It's focused on obviously sort of transportation and lifestyle things and just land use patterns and um, yeah, all sorts of stuff. It's super good it. work. Congratulations mostly to the team at Spur, the staff team has just been putting in a ton of work on it. So um, yeah, it's out there. It's a beautiful website also, uh, as you would expect from people like that. So it's fun to look at if you have yes. a minute. Yeah, it's great. It's exciting. I have, I'm just dipping into it myself, so I haven't gotten all the way through it, but it's, it's really exciting and um, yeah, it's very holistic in the way that you're describing it, um, yeah. which is really cool. Yeah. And it's been, it's been really nice for me too. I think, um, as you know, I work a lot more at the national scale and it's always been kind of a, it, it tugs on me a lot, you know, the, the need to work on more local things. I think there's just so much power in the work that we do locally. And I don't always manifest that opinion very well myself. And so working with Spur has just been the most satisfying, um, experience for me to to get involved in the community here in Oakland but also just in the bay more broadly um it's it's uh yeah I, I, if if you need an inspiration to think about how you might get involved in your local community around sort of you know whatever transformations it might need it, it, hopefully it doesn't need as much economic transformation as we need here in the bay in terms <laughs> of like everything we've got going on but uh you know, there's good work done out there. Um, indeed, so, yeah, indeed. Well, that is inspiring, um, and I think I do think it's an, an ongoing challenge, especially for people that are working at the national level around a variety of things, to sort of find the right ways to plug in locally in a way that can be meaningful and leverage what you're learning elsewhere. Um, yeah, for your own place. Yeah, totally. Which is a really good way to introduce, I think, to introduce our guest for today. We're so excited to have Johanna Parton with us today. Welcome, Johanna. Thank you. So great to be here. We are delighted to have you. Um, I'm going to give a quick bio and then we'll jump into some questions. Um, Johanna is Deputy Director of the Building Decarbonization Coalition, which unites building industry stakeholders with energy providers, environmental organizations, and local governments to help electrify California with clean energy. 
Prior to her appointment as deputy director, Johanna was the founding director of the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance. She's the former North American regional director of the C40 Cities Climate Leadership Group and senior environmental policy advisor to former San Francisco mayors, Gavin Newsom and Edward Lee. Speaking of working locally and making cities an agent for change and all that we're doing. Um, Johanna, I, I hope that you could start by telling us a little bit about how and why you got involved in sustainability and clean energy work specifically in policy in general. Can you describe your path for us? Sure, and thanks so much for um, having me on today. And I loved that the beginning conversation was in part about SPUR, which I worked quite closely with um, when I worked for the city of San Francisco. And I'm serving on SPUR's um, task force, which is looking at the building decarbonization um, part of the roadmap to get to carbon neutrality in the Bay Area. So it, it all comes full circle, doesn't it? Um, well, so I've, I've always been interested in the connection between people and the environment and, and specifically kind of earlier on in my career around the connection between sustainability and finding ways to overcome poverty and wealth inequality. I did my undergrad in environmental studies and cultural anthropology, which led me to a summer internship in Washington, DC when I was in undergrad with an organization that worked on microfinance, which I'm sure folks are familiar with, you know, um, is a way to really lift, especially women out of poverty by building up their abilities as small entrepreneurs. And of course, when you lift a woman out of poverty, it tends to lift their entire family out of poverty. Um, so I was really interested in microfinance and um, after undergrad, I got my first job uh, that I could find in clean energy and worked uh, for a nonprofit called TURN, which was very focused at the time on utility deregulation in California. So looking much more at the energy side of the equation and then spent some time working for a human rights organization. Um, so I kind of have been flipping back and forth between energy or people, right? Um, and then I ended up being able, having the opportunity to go to Bangladesh and India to do an internship with Mohammed Yunus, the director of the Grameen Bank. And Mohammed Yunus, of course, subsequently was awarded a Nobel Peace Prize in 2006. But at the time, Grameen Bank, which really pioneered the microfinance work, had created something called Grameen Shakti, which means energy, rural energy. And they were starting up a program to issue microfinance loans to women to buy solar panels so that they could operate sewing machines and charge cell phones or purchase electric auto rickshaws. And it was really the first time that I saw my two main interests, renewable energy and anti-poverty approaches come together in such a direct way. And I was hooked. Um, so after that, I went to grad school, got a master's in energy and environmental policy from the University of Delaware, which had a very international focus. And after grad school, I went to um, Winrock International, which is a, a international development organization based out of Washington, DC, and did that work for about seven years, designing microfinance programs for off-grid renewable energy programs. And then uh, became a little bit disillusioned <laughs> with international development and went hyper local. And so went to work for the city of San Francisco 
um, first overseeing the city's renewable energy programs. And then I was appointed by Gavin Newsom, who was mayor at the time, um, and the senior policy advisor on um, sustainability, climate, energy, and transportation, and stayed on after he left um, with Ed Lee for a little bit before he passed away, unfortunately. Um, and was hooked on city work based on that. Um, I love the idea that you can walk out the door, see something that needs to be changed and go into work and, and work on it. Um, and it'll take a while to fix it or change it, but, but you can make that change. And so I really got, work, got hooked on city's work and left the city and went to the C40 Cities Climate Leadership Group where I got to work with leading cities around the world and one of the things that we were hearing from cities that you think of as kind of the climate vanguards like Copenhagen and San Francisco, New York and London and Yokohama and others was that there was really no space at that time for them to connect with their peers around what it takes, the, the transformational change that is required to get to carbon neutrality, not to get to a 20 or 30 or 40% greenhouse gas reduction target, but really to change an entire system toward a decarbonized energy future. Um, and so became really interested in that idea. And um, there was no organization really focused on that for cities at the time. And so I left to create one and so created the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance, which really works with climate vanguard cities around the world to help them achieve their very ambitious carbon neutrality goals. And what I've been feeling over the past couple of years was that, you know, I really came to believe that the biggest challenge that we face in achieving aggressive climate action in many countries, certainly here in the US, is the challenge of getting off of natural gas or, or what I call fossil gas. You know, we have a third of our greenhouse gas emissions in the US comes from burning fossil gas. And we're really not going to be able to achieve deep deep decarbonization without eliminating gas from, from our homes and from our buildings um, and from our grids. And, you know, methane is a significant um, uh, emissions problem and it's the fastest growing climate pollutant in the world. And um, I think that methane leaks from the extraction and distribution of gas is really one of the least discussed and most devastating climate impacts. And burning fossil fuels is also a huge part of the air pollution problem. When we think about air pollution and smog, we typically think about power plants or cars. But in California, you know, power plants emit 20 tons of nitrogen oxides per day. Cars and trucks emit 49%. But buildings are responsible for more than 100 tons of NOx per day. So it's a huge part of the air pollution and the health problem. So that's why I've um, recently moved over to the Building Decarbonization Coalition uh, to focus on getting us off of gas and getting us toward a clean energy future in our buildings. This is so cool, Johanna. There's so many layers to your journey, but I can totally see how it's been this you know, in many ways, there's been this consistent thread, as you were saying, is, you know, even just like the decarbonization plus poverty um, intersection this has always been there for you, which um, I love. And, it, and it's been such a unique path that I, that I almost hesitate to ask this question, but I want to ask you anyway, whether you have advice for people who might be interested in going in at least a similar path to you or in the same field. 
um, whether you have uh, thoughts about what people should know when they're entering into your profession or what they should be good at or interested in, like what, what kinds of people are a good fit for the work that you do? Well, I think, you know, it's really important to be passionate about what you do, regardless of the industry or the field that you go into, but certainly in the um, sustainability, clean energy, and especially the policy space, this work is hard and you need to be committed to it. Um, so I think, you know, passion is, is probably the number one thing. Um, I think in this work, you also really need to be simultaneously patient and impatient at the same time. You know, the, the urgency of climate change requires that we act now yet, you know, if we're talking about lasting transformational change, especially policy change, this takes time. And so, you know, and, and transformational change also requires that we work with everybody and that the solutions work for everybody, not just the early adopters or the, the people who can afford new technologies. And that really requires building trust and trust doesn't happen overnight. You know, it's, it's that um, moving at the speed of trust is really important in creating lasting change. Um, as a former policymaker, I would say that you also need to, you know, you need to be respectful, build bridges, build, you know, bring people in, but you can't make everybody happy at, at, you know, all the time. And so you really need to have a thick skin and you need to keep your eye on the end goal at all times. What is it that we're really working to achieve? And the other thing that I found, especially during my time at the city, was that developing and adopting and implementing policy, it really has to be learned on the job. There was no amount of my academic learning that really trained me for what it takes to really do policy work. And so I would say, you know, you just have to do it. So if you're interested in policy and kind of trust, you know, transformational lasting change at the policy level, go intern or work directly with local government or an organization that works directly with government or serve on a local commission or a board or, you know, go make a policy that you care about happen in your city or town as a, as a citizen. Ah, this is all wonderful advice. I love it. It also, I, I really appreciate this point about the combination of impatience and patience. It was literally the topic of conversation in my uh, All We Can Save book circle a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about that. Uh, that, that yeah, it's just like, uh, I don't know, something about some of those pieces brought it up and we were having this very lively debate about, you know, should we be patient or should we not be patient? What is it? What is that about? But yeah, I think you're right. It's a mix of both. And um, especially from what I can see uh, from my outsider perspective in the policy world, um, that whole idea of trust building is, is um, yeah, it's just like how, how it seems to get done. And understandably, that's how sort of civil society probably should get done. So um, yeah, I, I love that. Thank you. It's really cool. Um, okay, well, there's a million things that I would be proud of if I had had your work life, but can you tell us what you're most proud of in, in accomplishing so far um, in, your, in your life? Anything that could be more personal or it could be professional, anything that comes to mind? Uh, well, two things come to mind, one kind of professional and one kind of personal. I mean, I guess 
uh, you know, for many of us, personal and professional lines are often blurred. <laughs> so maybe it's a little bit of both, but um, I'm really proud of the work that we did in San Francisco. Um, you know, it, San Francisco has, has long been one of the leading um, kind of climate vanguard cities for, for decades now. But I, it was such a privilege to be able to work with um, amazing elected officials, amazing citizens and, and businesses, amazing community partners, and amazing, really dedicated local government staff, and um, and and an amazing array of um, stakeholders that really were working toward a similar goal. They had different ways of wanting to get there, but um, we were able to adopt a 100% renewable energy goal. We were able to commit ourselves to carbon neutrality. We were able to pass a mandate that, um, that all, quote, waste was to be composted or recycled. Um, we were innovative in looking at different ways that we could explore kind of new emerging technologies like offshore wind and tidal power, you know, to help us meet our city goals. Um, and we were able to get the one of the first um, CCA programs passed, of course, Marin being the leader, but um, Clean Power SF was passed at the time, which has been a game changer for the city. So I'm, I'm really proud of, of that work. Um, and then on a personal level, you know, I'm really proud of, of creating the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance when it was clear that um, it was there was a, a need that wasn't being met. And I had never created a, a startup. Um, I had never created a nonprofit. And, you know, I didn't know how to do any of that, but there was a real need to do it. And so 17 mayors and I got together and said, well, someone has to do this because they're, you know, if, if we're not going to be successful, leading cities aren't going to be able to achieve carbon neutrality. No one's going to be able to do it. And so, and so we created it together. And, um, so that was kind of fun from a, a personal level, creating a startup, which I, I had no idea how to do. And, and now I do, and, and that's, that's fun. Absolutely. Oh, Johanna, I love those stories. And um, yeah, you, you do have a lot to choose from in terms of really interesting highlights. Um, you've had such an interesting career. And you talked a little bit about this before, but you've worked at so many different scales in your career and you you referenced how you got a little frustrated with it sort of the international development um scale and what that felt like and i just wondered if you could talk a little bit about why a little more about why you focused on leveraging impact at the city scale i think this is something that a lot of people think about like where can i have the most impact like i want to work really hard i'm really passionate but i don't know where to target my energies. And I'm, I'm so curious about the city scale and how you, how you came to see such opportunity there. Yeah, and I, I really think that it's important to have ambition and leadership at, at all scales. And obviously the more leadership that we have at the, at the national level or international level, the less we the less of a struggle it is at the local level to to really be ambitious especially in in climate and sustainability work um what i've found though is that cities and 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 mayors and city council 
um, members tend to be more ambitious than their state or national counterparts. Um, we've got some exciting things happening in the White House now that that I think is going to change that a little bit. But I, I think that you know cities tend to be the most ambitious, and I think that that's for. I've spent a lot of time thinking about why that is. I think it's for a number of reasons. One. Cities are on the front lines of climate change. You know, if if there's a power outage or if there is a flood or a heat wave or some kind of big event, people call their local officials. Um, it you know, and the local officials are the ones that see it firsthand and experience it firsthand. And so I think they really feel climate impacts the most um, the most deeply and the most directly. And, and therefore, they're more inspired to, to take ambitious action to address it. Um, and so, and, and I think that, that local governments are more connected to people and they hear from people that these are big challenges. You know, it, people are really struggling with a number of things, especially, you know, during COVID times, but, but asthma and abilities to work in a in a clean and healthy environment or to you know cook at home with their families these are these are you know big challenges that people are facing and i think local officials are much more closely connected with the way that communities are are feeling these challenges um and then finally, you know, I love my city and I love that, as I said before, I get to walk out the door and, and see something that needs changing and, and go work on it or, or you know, talk to people to, to go make it happen. So I find that kind of work really inspiring. Absolutely. Well, it certainly can have, I mean, it feels a lot more immediate and connected to to your place and the people around you. Um, that's really interesting. Um, I wondered if there's a project that you're working on right now that you'd like listeners to know about. Yes. Oh, I want listeners to know about indoor air quality and the impact of cooking with fossil fuels in the home. Uh, this is, you know, I, I've been, I've worked for, for decades now on, on sustainability and I've been very focused on, um, renewable energy and clean energy and energy efficiency. And, you know, I've made a lot of changes to our own home and our own, you know, kind of um, way that we live our lives in my own home. But, but I, when I realized that I hadn't addressed one of the biggest health impacts in my own home, I was really kind of shocked. Um, you know, I, I do a lot of cooking. I enjoy cooking. I enjoy entertaining. Um, I'm really looking forward to being able to do that again soon. And I spend a lot of time, I have two kids, 13 and 15, two boys, and I've always felt like um, cooking with my family um, is something, it's, it's, it's something I really enjoy. I really cherish that time with my kids and with my family. And so we cook together a lot. And, um, and now we've gotten to a point where our two boys cook dinner every Sunday night. And a, a while back, I, I realized as I was cooking, I turned on my stove, I had a gas stove, and um, I turned on the stove and I smelled the gas coming out. And I had gotten so used to that smell as like the smell of cooking, that I took a step back for a moment. And I just said like, hmm, 
I'm breathing in gas fumes right now. Like, is this what I want to be doing as I have my children in my kitchen with me preparing a, a delicious, healthy meal? And I now have gotten to the point where I'm not sure I want my kids to be in the kitchen with me when I'm cooking or for me to be, you know, breathing in these fumes. And, and that's wrong, you know, that, that, that's not the way I want society to be. And that's not the way I want us to live our lives in our own homes. And so that's when I started researching, you know, the health impacts of, of burning fossil fuels in my house. Um, and, you know, I learned that, you know, 90% of all homes have unhealthy levels of nitrogen dioxide pollution after cooking with gas for just an hour. And in fact, we're seeing now that um, even when stoves are off, they can leak significant amounts of methane, you know, not even cooking, just having a gas stove in, in your kitchen. And children living with gas cooking in the home face a comparable risk of asthma to a child living with a household with household cigarette smoke. Um, you know, and, and we're learning more and more that burning gas along with wood and biomass in buildings now has a more negative health impact than burning coal in many states. And of course, all of these numbers are exacerbated for people of color. There was a Science Advances magazine article last month that showed that people of color are exposed to somewhere between 11 and 21% more particle matter, um, harmful particle matter from residential gas combustion and commercial cooking than white people. So we're really looking at, um, you know, something that certainly has climate change impacts, but more importantly, I think it really impacts the health of people in their homes. And that's why I'm really excited to work um, with a number of stakeholders to accelerate the transition to all electric homes and buildings in leading states. Um, so California, New York, a number of other leading states. And we've built up a pretty diverse coalition of groups that are encouraging state officials to approve all electric um, building codes so that we can ensure that buildings, at least new construction that are built this decade are healthy and climate friendly. Because of course, once you build a new building, it then becomes an existing building and existing builder buildings are harder to tackle. And so let's get at that lower hanging fruit and make sure that all new construction is healthy for people that live in the building. And there's a nice connection with cities here too, because cities have really been the tip of the spear on this. You know, in California, we now have 45 cities that represent more than 10% of the state's population that have committed to gas-free new construction. And more cities are going in that same direction, both here in California and, and in other states all the time. It's, I have to just say, it's been an incredibly inspiring thing to watch just the wave of action um, that you all are a part of. Um, I'm, I'm so excited about it. I love watching it. I love being on the listserv and seeing everybody talking about the different facets of what that what that um, movement looks like. It's just, it's been a highlight. We've talked about it, I think, fair amount on the podcast, actually, from different folks that we've had on that are involved in some way and sort of the whole, the electrification movement. But um, yeah, thank you for, I don't know, just really eloquently talking about what that feels like. I feel very thankful, personally, that I live in an all-electric home. It was not 
um, up to me. I'm in a condo building, but every day I think about all of this stuff and I'm like, man, I'm glad I don't have to, <laughs> or I'll read on the listserv, somebody describing what it took for them to, you know, electrify and uh, all the different like contractors they talked to and things. And I'm just like, yeah, I got this. This is <laughs> very Yeah, relieved. it's not for the faint of heart. I'm in the midst of that right now. <laughs> Yay, <laughs> all right. Point. But it's, it's a process, one thing well, at a time too. Yeah, yeah. It's but funny it's you too, guys. As, as a former person who worked on permitting uh, for, for solar energy projects in the city, you know, I'm now experiencing it on the receiving end of, yeah. you know, going through the permitting process myself to get an induction stove and to, to switch over to a um, electric furnace and electric water heater. So it's, as you said, Kira, it's, it's not for the faint of heart, but it needs to happen and we need to make it easier, which is the work that needs to happen. Yeah, it's you all are trailblazing. It will be easier for everyone else after this. So don't be daunted out there if you're considering it. It's going to get better. Uh, there's like all sorts of incentives coming down the pike. It's going to be great. Uh, I'm, I'm excited. And lots of people to help. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, so speaking of that, that uh, light that has been, um, I don't know, ex exciting me recently, that this, this movement that's been building around electrification, I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about, um, we, we sort of like to talk more broadly on the show about, um, about the movements that we're involved in. So I'm wondering for you, this, the sustainable buildings and communities industry, you know, we think of it as sort of a movement and an industry in, in different, different conversations, we treat it differently. So do you feel like you're a part of an industry? Do you feel like you're a part of a movement? And how, how do you think about that for yourself? Yeah, I, I think I share your view, which is it's really both. I mean, I'm, a movement is nothing but a series of actions working toward a desired end. Mm -hmm. And so we, and so the folks that are engaged in those kinds of things are really part of a movement, but I, you know, I'm, I'm someone that has, um, I believe in taking systems change approaches to things because otherwise we're just making kind of incremental changes that aren't connected to the end goal, the, the bigger, broader end goal. And really what we're trying to achieve is, is a future that is um, one in which people have the ability to thrive on a thriving planet. I mean, that's what we're, that's what we all want, isn't it? And and, and so getting to that is both, um, is both a movement and, and requires industry to, to, to be there. And I've been pretty inspired. I think, especially the building and design community and the, you know, and the manufacturers of um, clean energy technologies, there's been so much forward movement in that. And we really have to take kind of a, a market-based approach to much of what needs to happen. Not, not everything, but, but we really need to make sure that we are shifting systems that are created around companies that can make money from doing what is good for people and, and good for the planet. And so we need to build up a marketplace that, um, that, that is driving demand for those products and services and technologies. And then at some point we're gonna need to 
make it so that those are the only, you know, clean energy, healthy technologies are the only things that are available to us as, as citizens and residents and, and building dwellers. Um, so I, I kind of see it as both. I think, I think it's both an industry and, and a movement. And, and I think the part of the movement that is absolutely critical is the people that are, that are calling for these approaches and, um, and these products, it's not going to happen if people don't want them and need them and, and if people can't afford them. And so that's where the, the policy and the regulation piece comes in. And it's, it's really critical to, um, to make sure that our systems are, are built around, um, around people's ability to access them. Yeah. I amen to that. I'm, 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 I'm such a believer <laughs> that as, as people who listen to the podcast know, that's, it's time for these things to be more ingrained in, in the ways that our, that our society works. Uh, it's, it's not an option. It shouldn't be an option anymore. Uh, but yeah, and that, that's an oversimplification, but I, I'm with you. Um, I'm wondering if you had visions of the year 2020, um, as many of us did that have been working in this long enough where that seemed like it was far off and uh, how your visions have differed from reality, obviously pandemic aside, um, but how, what, what does that look like when you look back at it? Well, I thought we'd be a lot farther along. Um, I think that cities and local governments are continuing to lead the way in taking bold action. I've been really pleased with the, with the movement there um, and I actually think, you know, aside, of course, from big fossil fuel interests, that the private sector, as I mentioned, has in many cases been even bolder than than some levels mm -hmm. of of um, of of policymakers um, and government. And I think, you know, to me, I I think that we need to um, empower, especially our state and national. Um, levels of government to be to be bolder. Um, you know, again, great things are happening in the White House. They have lots of um, lots of hope and optimism around what's happening there. And but I I think that the system is. Um, you know, I I believe that we don't need to fix people. We need to fix systems. And we've got some really strong, really bold state and national policymakers in place in many states, in many states, certainly here in California. But they're really facing some formidable systemic challenges, which have been severely enhanced by a massive lack of support at the national level over the past four years. And so I think that we need to shift our system so that our bold state and national uh, governments are empowered to be even bolder and to take kind of a systemic approach. Um, we take, we tend in government to take a very siloed approach. You know, we've got multiple state agencies that are working on multiple programs. And then within even one state agency, they, you know, we tend to separate energy efficiency and, um, renewable energy and electric vehicles and, those things all really can come together and create a much more holistic approach that will actually help us get to our ultimate goal faster. 
And so, um, so I was hoping that we'd be farther along in doing that than we are now. But I think that the next couple of years, empowered and emboldened by um, some pretty impressive uh, folks in the White House right now, I think that if we don't make significant progress over the next year or two, we will put systems and infrastructure in place that will make it impossible for our, us to reach our 2030 and 2040, 2050 goals. Um, so I, I think the next two years are absolutely critical and um, we need to make up for some significant lost time over the past four years. Yes, I'm feeling it. It's true. So much to do right now. Um, I love it and I agree. It's always motivating to hear it though. Um, okay, my last question for you is sort of, I, I think you've actually answered this in part, but I wonder if you've answered sort of the question about where you think we've done well. I, I guess maybe the question, I'll phrase it this way, where where do you think we could have focused more in the past, you know, so say decade um, in terms of sort of community sustainability issues uh, or, you know, wh where are the areas that you think there's been a lack of progress that we should have had? Yeah, I think that we, um, and and I'm gonna put my, my government hat back on for a moment. Um, I think that we didn't do a good enough job of centering equity and justice in our work and centering people in our work. Um, and some of that has been because we've been really focused on making short-term, making really significant short-term greenhouse gas emission um, gains. Um, not for bad reasons. We really, you know, the urgency of, of needing to avert climate disaster is real. Um, and so I think that there has been this kind of tyranny of urgency that people talk about sometimes where, you know, for a couple of reasons, one is the climate change, you know, urgency. One is that, you know, elected officials and grant you know, grant funds and um, these kinds of things have time horizons, right? You know, you have four years in office or in some states too, um, and you wanna be able to show progress and you've got funding sources that require you to report on progress in the next year or two or, or whatever the short term um, uh, is. And that sometimes creates a, a a greater focus on shorter term gains, but sometimes you do that at the expense of longer term gains. And so I think in this case, um, we have prioritized that over taking the time that was necessary to, to, to build the trust with people that we were, we were in this for, um, for, the right reasons we were listening to their priority concerns. And, um, and sometimes I think that's fallen off the wayside. And I think that we that has caused us to shoot ourselves in the foot um, a little bit, or, or in some cases a lot, because, you know, you really need to bring um, 
everybody along, like I, like we were talking about before, um, it needs to benefit everybody. We need to address the significant harm that's been done to communities. And without doing that, we are diverting focus from what we could all be doing together. Um, so I think that one thing that does inspire me right now is um, a greater focus on that and, and greater attention being paid to the fact that we, we really need to be centering people and justice in, in all climate and sustainability work going forward. And we have a long way to go to, to be able to actually do that well but I think it's absolutely critical. And I think we're going to reach our goals much, um, much quicker and certainly more effectively when we, when we do that as policymakers. I love that, Johanna. Um, it seems to me that that is really sort of part and parcel of your, you've, you've mentioned this a few times, this you know, thinking about the system. And if we were thinking about the system all along, that would have been part of the thinking, right? And and then maybe we could use the urgency instead to sort of advance the system change rather than just advance. I mean, I love how you framed the short-termism um, and and how that's that's really hurting us. Um, really fascinating. We are nearing the end of our time, and the question that we like to close on is really about who you are most inspired by these days in terms of leaders or people or really anyone um, that you've encountered. This could be climate folks or built environment folks, folks or, or others. If there's somebody that you'd like, one or more people that you'd like to call out. Well, it sounds cliche, but I'm so inspired by the youth and young people these days. I'm so, you know, I think about myself as a, as a teen or, or in my young 20s, and I was just not as smart and organized and passionate as they were about, as, as they are these days about stuff that really matters, putting people first, climate change, um, you know, addressing wealth inequality. I'm so inspired by that. Um, and it sounds cliche, but, but it's true. Um, and the other, the other, I take my inspiration quite often and certainly have over the past four years um, from Europe. <laughs> I think Europe's just doing a lot right. Um, you know, I think they've come, uh, they've come, they've gotten organized around um, addressing climate change very, very seriously. We've started to see, you know, Norway, for example, is, you know, the fifth largest oil exporter in the world, and they have committed to getting off of oil and gas. And, you know, cities like Oslo have been able to do that. And one in two cars in Norway is an electric vehicle. And, you know, I'm, I'm just so inspired by the work, that, especially that, that they're doing at the city level in Europe. Um, and the support that they're getting from the European Union is making a lot of that work possible. And so I think that they have a model that I would love for us to um, emulate here in the United States. And I think that we can take a lot of inspiration from there. And I, I don't think it's unique to Europe. I think we can do it too. And so I'm really inspired by, um, by the leadership um, being shown at multiple levels of, of government and action uh, that, we can, that we can take on here as well. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. The Norway example is such a powerful one. 
because it really shows that even when the economic interests are fully embedded, there can still be that leadership um, around the topic, which I thought was just incredibly powerful, a great statement. Yeah, agreed. And, um, and it's also just, I don't know, it's a nice, it's a nice ending note for us, Johanna, to have you remind us that like in some ways, in many ways, the work that we're all trying to do collectively, so someone has started it, someone has come up with an idea somewhere in the world, and we just need to listen and collaborate well with each other to spread the good ideas and get them to scale, you know, and, and that it's not the I, I always feel that way when I look to Europe and understand what what has been going on or what the cutting edge looks like there. Um, it's a, it's a good reminder that that there are lessons to be learned everywhere. So thank you and thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. It's been such a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun and thanks so much for the invitation to be here. And I love your work and I love what you do. And I love this forum to really elevate women's voices in the sustainability space. I did my graduate um, thesis on gender in energy. And so it's it's just a delight to be able to speak with you and, and see you advancing um, this movement. So oh, thank, thank you for you. having me. Yeah, thank you. That's great to hear. And it, it is, it's such an inspiration. I feel lucky that we get to just, I don't know, spend this time making sure that we all feel the strength that we have um, and and see what it looks like to have so many amazing women in, in these positions like you. So thank you. Um, and that's it for us this week on the Design the Future podcast. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. Please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters. It helps people find us. Stay safe, and we'll see you next week.